This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. As I record this, I'm hunkered down in my house like many others, trying to maintain a normal routine while monitoring a situation that is changing constantly. In today's episode, HFMA President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer will be talking with Tim Maurice, the CFO at UC Davis Health System in California, where several patients with coronavirus have been treated. In our Fast Five segment, HFMA's Todd Nelson will be sharing tips for working outside the office for those of you who are new to working remotely. First, though, we're going beyond the news with Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney, who are talking about the latest developments. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor here at HFMA. And hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks again for once again joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast. This is, of course, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. So today we're going to be taking a quick update on provider implications of the March 13th National Emergency Declaration. That White House declaration, of course, asked hospitals to implement emergency preparedness plans and ordered states to each open their own emergency operations center focused on the coronavirus. The order also gave HHS the authority to waive a range of laws and regulations, which the department's sub-agencies have been doing in the days since. So in the uh, executive order, what would you highlight here for our listeners, Chad? You know, out of the emergency declaration, I really think about the key things for providers here is they're really focused on ways that the agency can drop regulatory barriers to creating additional capacity to see patients. And so whether that's the removing some of the limitations on critical access hospitals so they can still retain their designation, but have patients stay in-house for more than 96 hours, or that they can expand beyond 25 beds if they have that capacity, or things like eliminating the three-day stay requirement for SNFs so that some patients might be able to be directly admitted to SNF, or you might be able to discharge patients faster from the hospital and put them in a SNF bed. So things like that. The other thing that they also relaxed through this was the requirement that an acute patient be seen on an acute unit. So now you could also see potentially provide acute care and get paid under the IPPS in a psych ward as an example. The, the final thing with this is also by declaring a national emergency, it unlocks up to $50 billion in Stafford Act funding that could be used, among other things, by FEMA to provide funding to create temporary medical facilities if, if hospitals in a given area become overwhelmed. The other side of this also is from the Medicare side is it relaxes some of the licensing requirements, like state licensing requirements and also restrictions on sort of where the, you can set up office space to, as you think about it, you've opened up this capacity. Now you've also got to have the providers there to provide that care. 
The the last thing that I'll mention, and certainly Rich, you probably know more about this because CMS just released the the press release a couple minutes before we hopped on the line. Uh, it also relaxed the requirements around telehealth services so that physicians can provide remote visits and hospital check-ins. That's right. And the telehealth change that just came out, uh, of course, is going to be paying at the full rate for uh, that the service would be provided and paid for if provided in person. So some pretty significant changes there, uh, suspending the HIPAA enforcement during the emergency and should have a lot of appeal to providers in terms of looking at that option in light of especially the in-office challenges and, and concerns about spread of coronavirus at this point. So we'll be watching that closely. Are there any other uh, sort of follow-on actions from the executive order that you're watching for, such as the rule today on telehealth? Well, I mean, and obviously one of the things that the national emergency or the national disaster declaration allowed was for states to file section 1135 waivers that would allow for relaxing of a whole number of Medicaid plan revisions like prior authorization, again, creating more flexibility so that providers could be brought in and bill under a state's Medicaid plan, et cetera which this now opens up. And certainly we saw Florida go ahead and jump on that. And they actually had the first, they got their waiver in. It, as of this morning, was already approved. So obviously CMS is, for these waivers, working very quickly to get those through the door and and, and processed. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, this definitely will have a big impact in each state as well. And then another area we did want to ask about really quick was the action on Capitol Hill. Congress has already cleared one piece of coronavirus legislation, and the House has passed a second piece of legislation that's now in front of the Senate. And then a third piece of legislation is being actively negotiated between the chambers and the administration. Uh, Among these various pieces of legislation, is there uh, some elements that you would highlight for our listeners, Chad? Yeah. So for the second bill that the House has passed, but we're waiting on Senate action as of I guess this is now one o'clock Eastern time on March 17th. The House bill would expand while there was a national declaration of emergency, paid sick days and paid leave for some workers and temporary increases in the Medicaid federal matching rate for the Medicaid programs and also expand unemployment insurance and provide funds. So that's sort of some of the, the broader social determinants issues and also trying to help state Medicaid programs in this time when they're going to be stressed. And obviously, that funding for the Medicaid dollars will trickle down to physicians and hospitals. The other piece of the House passed legislation is that it would require all health plans or comprehensive health plans to cover FDA-approved testing and services related to detect or diagnose coronavirus. And that would also apply to the administration of the testing. And that would be required to be covered without cost sharing. That applies to ERISA plans and also individual market plans as well. And there's a there parallel requirement on there for Medicare as well. So, you know, we're hearing conflicting things, Rich, and I don't know if you've heard anything more recently, but there seems to be some tug of war back and forth among the Republicans. I think earlier this morning, I had seen that Majority Leader McConnell was was fairly confident that the House bill would be passed as written. But we've also seen some some rumblings around or from other Republican members that they may need to make some tweaks to the language that came over from the House. So we're, we're following that, but I would anticipate that in the next couple of days, round two will be passed. Now, that, that bill doesn't have any explicit funding in it for hospitals to help sort of buttress up or help 
offset the cost of the additional capacity that they're bringing online on some of the other impacts that we're seeing from the coronavirus potentially as a result of canceled or delayed elective procedures. But my understanding is, is that in discussions around what a third support package could look like, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, whose hospitals are obviously probably going to be at the forefront of this, or at least in the early wave of COVID-19 admissions, just given the high case count they have in New York relative to the rest of the country, is suggested about a $750 billion package, and that would include some funding for hospital capacity and also emergency child care and also more, more Medicaid funding. We'll be keeping an eye on that one. And of course, you can keep track of that legislation. We'll be writing it up if and when it is enacted on our daily news page, or you can also read Chad's blogs that are analyzing the significance of many elements that are moving in this current crisis. That website, of course, is hfma.org forward slash news. But in the meantime, Chad, thanks for, for joining us on this fast moving and multifaceted national challenge. Well, Rich, always a pleasure to talk to you. Certainly, you know, as we need to continue having these conversations, we certainly will. Take care and thanks for listening. Today, uh, I'm, uh, I don't know how to describe my emotions today. It's an extraordinary time in the life of our country and in our world, really, you know, if you think about it, just 10 days ago or so, maybe two weeks, everything was normal. We were all planning um, both our personal and business lives in the normal course of business. Yeah, we heard some news stories about coronavirus. We didn't know what to make of it, didn't know how serious to take it. But by and large, our daily lives were pretty much normal. And here we are just a, literally a few days later, we're reacting to a phenomenal set of events, um, which will likely play out over months. And so it's in that context, we heard about UC Davis Health System uh, and how they are dealing with that. So UC Davis is the University of California at Davis Health System. Um, they made headlines recently, this is how we heard about them, when providers there discovered they were likely treating the first community spread case of COVID-19. Uh, at least in the United States. And as of March 11th, UC Davis reported they had treated three patients with COVID-19, all of whom are doing well. And I think Tim, uh, our guest here in a second, Tim, who I'll introduce, uh, he'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, the system reports learning valuable information about how the virus spreads and that taking the appropriate precaution, precautions has helped providers there avoid getting sick. And uh, we thought as an organization on the front lines of this crisis, that, you know, how cool it would be to have their CFO uh, join us, uh, who will undoubtedly have some valuable insights to share as, as we all continue to monitor and work through this public health crisis. So with that introduction, my guest today is the CFO of UC Davis Health System, Tim Maurice. And so, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. I'll, one more introductory uh, comment, and then I'll jump into some questions of Tim. You know, we we put this episode together in very short order. We're bypassing some of our normal sound quality <laughs> devices and techniques. And so if you hear a little bit of a different quality to our podcast today, it's just because we thought timeliness was more important than, than a little bit of a sacrifice in quality. So with that, and, and gosh, this goes without saying, Tim, but this continues to be rapidly evolving. Would you talk about the steps that you've taken as a leader at UC Davis to keep your team abreast of all these changes as they occur, which 
they seem to be changing literally by the hour? Well, yes, it's, it, this is rapidly changing. And uh, for for us, the uh, incident has been in place longer than most because we received that first index patient that was community spread. And when we first faced that patient, we recognized that there was a risk that this patient may have COVID but uh, was not traveling and therefore didn't meet the CDC protocol. So thank goodness we have a great clinical team who took proper precautions and informed the CDC and the state health department that they felt that this patient may be at risk despite their not traveling or being in contact with the traveler and were able to, after 10 days, get the, get the patient tested and tested positive. So that immediately launched our incident command center and we placed 80 employees on self-quarantine for that two-week period, as well as uh, 10 physicians. And we're pleased to say that the index patient has now been safely discharged and that none of the employees or physicians who are placed on self-quarantine are presenting positive and they're returning to work. So that's great news, uh, despite the uh, unexpected challenge. Yeah, no doubt. And you think about that, one patient coming in and then putting all those folks in self-quarantine you know, that's just, that's one, in the big scheme of things, one small step, but you think about how many people that impacts. You know, Tim, I, I've been in emergency situations before, nothing like this, of course, but enough to know what, you know, what a command center environment looks and feels like. And I remember, you know, going into that, you know, you'd like to think that financial people can sit in the background and let the clinical people do their job. And there's some element to that, but that's really not the case. I was surprised in my little situation that was serious in our hospital, but it certainly wasn't as broad as this. But the impact that I felt in the conversations I found myself getting pulled into along the lines of supply chain and, you know, different kinds of requisitions and, and payroll issues or temporary labor or accounting issues that were necessary, it, you know, it, there really is time-sensitive things for the financial people. So with that as a context, how have you and your finance team helped your organization, you know, prepare for either additional patients or maybe uh, secondly, how, if you would describe the collaboration between you and your peers, whether it's a uh, chief medical officer, chief nursing officer, or other folks uh, around in the management team. For better or worse, we've had some recent experience with significant events here in California and at the University of California related to wildfires, the smoke penetration that came from those wildfires that affected large geographic areas and some uh, temporary labor shortages. So we've had our incident command structure in place and practicing in real events in the last couple of years that really helped prepare us for this. And so, you know, having done this for many years, I firmly believe in the incident command structure and the importance of identifying roles and responsibilities so that as the situation starts to become larger, that you expand the command center units to include finance teams, logistics teams, planning teams, communication teams, and labor pool teams so that each team can play their role and communicate effectively to the incident commander so that we're all working in the same direction and singing off the same sheet of music. You know, I don't know if you've found this to be the case in your various times in these environments, but you know, it's really important to honor the roles uh, in that incident command center. And, you know, 
And those roles aren't necessarily in line with the organizational chart, right? And so I remember as the chief financial officer feeling like a role player, an important role player, but a role player, which is very different from every other environment that we're in as a management team. Can you comment on that a little bit? Well, in our case, because we're such a large academic health system, I try to avoid playing a unit role uh, within the finance team because I recognize that once you assume that role, you could be in it for days and weeks. And so we've already established delegation, and I've assigned my director of revenue services as, as our primary incident command representative for the finance team. And he continues to play that role, and, and as he has other duties, he delegates down. But we provide consistency by assigning roles to part, independent of your title. This isn't, has, the incident command has nothing to do with title and has everything to do with roles and responsibilities. And being properly prepared and drilled to assume those responsibilities so that we can effectively work together. That's exactly my point, Tim, is you gotta, you gotta set the ego aside, you set the title aside and, and stick to the game plan. And, and honoring that with discipline is really, really important in those situations. So if folks are new into this, again, that was a learning for me and, uh, you know, in our incidents, you know, way back when. Some of the decisions I'm sure that you're involved with in probably center around uh, requests for temporary labor, clearly, uh, you know, on the supply chain side, seeing different kinds of requisitions. I don't know what it's like in terms of what prices for those services are in these kinds of situations. Have you found any issues there or any effective negotiating strategies to deal with some of those timely issues? Well, the the importance is to make sure that we make rapid decisions and that those decisions um, can sometimes bypass the standard approval protocol so that uh, those decisions can be made timely. So we clearly um, immediately were dealing with what are the what do we do to prepare the clinical teams to address the immediate issues so that they can be the firefighters running into the incident uh, with the proper equipment and tools and training to protect themselves because that's our primary objective is to protect those who are caring for the patient or caring for the event. And if they're not properly protected, then we lose our workforce and we can't have that. So that's what's our first priority is how can we provide the necessary supplies, equipment, whatever you need, tell us what we need, you need, we will get it for you immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's what we stood up to do regardless of our role And I feel we did that effectively, which shows as to how we were able to protect our clinical staff and avoid exposure. Sure. I I can totally relate. Let me shift gears a little bit here and pick up on something that you alluded to a minute ago. You know, one of the ways that this situation is so different from any other catastrophic event that I can think of in those, and many, and and probably to your fires or whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes and other situations, but those are very specific events and they have a, you know, a specific uh, timeline to them. This one is really different. I mean, this, again, as I said in the beginning, it could be going on for months. And one of the steps that our country is adopting, you know, some areas better than others, but the whole concept of social distancing. And uh, many organizations, uh, HFMA included, you know, we've closed our offices and we have all 100 of our employees working remotely. Hospitals can't do that, but maybe there are some functions that can. So 
Are you operating some of your financial functions? You mentioned revenue cycle. There's also payroll and payables. Are you using remote locations or remote employees? Or how are you navigating the social distancing uh, calls for our for you to adopt? Yes, so we have a a telework policy and procedures in place that we've had for quite some time, and we're just increasing our inventory of devices as we can get them, that has uh, secure encrypted laptops with virtual private networks, as well as smart devices that have dual authentication to ensure that working from home are doing secure better and protecting patient information or private information. That's essential. Yeah, no doubt. I'm wondering about this, you know, your revenue cycle processes and and resources, whether it's front-end staff, um, you know, there's lots of questions about how insurance coverage works, so patient financial counselors, you know, those folks that are patient-facing. Have you had to add resources? What are you doing with the front end of the revenue cycle? Uh, You know, I I don't know if you have increased ED or acute care uh, admissions, but just talk a little bit about the front end of the revenue cycle and what implications that's had in this situation? Well, the good news is that we haven't received a surge and we currently, uh, outside of the three patients that we treated, we have no currently active coronavirus patients in-house. And in fact, we've actually seen a drop-off in emergency visits over the last few days. But we're preparing for the surge. So that's where I think um, having that little bit of lead time helps us prepare. But uh, we know that the surge is coming. So it's really important in advance of the surge that we look at how we can provide more flexibility in our policies. And we really appreciate the national emergency and the uh, provision for Section 1135 waivers that allow us to bypass some of the EMTALA rules, uh, bypass some of our inpatient rehab facility transfers, and do other things to provide the capacity that we need to uh, handle a surge when it arrives. You know, it's interesting. I was watching, of course, like many of us, um, there's so much of the news this week, and and, uh, and some of the, the announcements when Administrator Verma or uh, Secretary Azar and, you know, some of the other folks, you know, they were talking about some of the things that they, that they were implementing. And I'm sure it sounded like Greek to, you know, the media in, that was present and, you know, others as they are listening to this. But uh, I just know that behind the scenes is a tremendous amount of work to free up not just resources, but free of processes to be much more nimble. And it sounds like that's what you're ready. We all hope that this surge doesn't come or that the surge is is much less. That's obviously the whole idea behind this social distancing. And I hope to talk to you in several months and say, hey, we never really had a huge surge. But uh, I would certainly hope so. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, Tim, what's one last question for you? What are one or two things either you or your organization has learned either from previous experiences or initial experience, this this initial experience with COVID-19 that maybe that I haven't asked about that you'd like to share? Anything I've missed that you think is relevant for our members? Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize the importance of academic health care. And the fact that we're on the front lines in this event, we are very capable of identifying the symptoms in, in order to inform the science to advise CDC and help them in developing policy around containment versus mitigation around airborne transmission versus droplet and contact transmission so that we could quickly adapt our clinical protocols so that we could uh, address the needs as they occur. 
and address the virus as it presents itself. And to me, that's the beauty of academic healthcare, and that's where we here at UC Davis are really at the forefront of using science with sincerity. We're sincerely caring about the patient, but we're introducing the science and introducing the evidence to inform policy, to provide the testing uh, capabilities that may not be available in other sources. We have testing capabilities already at two of our hospitals, and we'll have all of them by the end of this week so that we can provide testing resources. We're informing the science about the proper use of PPE and protective equipment so that we can protect our workers. And we're hopefully going to be in the forefront in developing vaccines by using the information that comes from the blood of patients who are recovering. And we are, we are on the forefront of that clinical research. And that's where uh, you just can't underestimate the importance of academic healthcare as being the firefighters that run to the event, but also inform the science to develop the treatment and the cures that are so necessary to be developed. Well, that is a great way to end this, and I'm going to end it with a little bit of an editorial comment on my own. You know, I've been perusing social media in between, you know, frantic meetings and watching the news, and I get really frustrated with the level of bashing of uh, of our healthcare system response. I think there's a lot of untold stories, and you just revealed several of them of of all the activity. And the, and I know, and I, and I, you know, I have a daughter who's a PA at a tertiary quaternary health system, and I know some of the preparations that are going on behind the scenes that aren't being properly reflected in so many of the uh, you know, social media you know posts, and so. I think, one, it's just ill-timed to be using this time to criticize the health system. Yes, should we at the end of this look back and look to improve various things that we're doing as a country in terms of health? I think that's always the case. Right in the middle of this, I think what we need to be talking about is how are systems like UC Davis and, and, and systems all around the country preparing for this? And it is nothing short of phenomenal. So thank you, Tim, for representing UC Finance, or UC Davis Finance, um, representing the industry and for doing what you do. It means a lot to so many people in this country and we just really appreciate it. And thanks for joining me uh, today to share your thoughts. My pleasure, Joe. You know, I've been in healthcare and been a member of HFMA since 1976. And I can tell you that through these years of training, there's been nothing like this event, but we are prepared, we are capable, and I'm so proud to be part of the system. Well, we're proud of you, too. Thank you, Tim. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, all of us at HFMA are now working remotely in an effort to halt the spread of the coronavirus. So earlier this week, Todd Nelson, our Director of Partner Relationships and Chief Partnership Executive, shared some things that he's learned as a person who travels a lot and frequently finds himself outside of a traditional office. So I asked him to share some of those tips in our Fast Five segment today. Todd, welcome. Thanks, Erica. Uh, happy to be here and happy to, to be on today. You know, I've been probably for the last decade traveling. I, I think I've learned some things that have been helpful for me and hopefully what I share today will be helpful for others. Here's a couple of my tips. 
find a comfortable chair or place or chairs to work from. Um, I really can't emphasize that enough, how important it is to be comfortable when sitting for long periods of time. And, and frankly, dress comfortably, especially if you're not on video. Make sure that your technology is set up. Charge your devices. If you're using your cell phone or whatever, make sure that's charged. Make sure you got your laptop cord or your desktop. Whatever you've got, make sure you got power. Because I know that sounds goofy, but you know when you're not working in your normal place, sometimes you don't think to charge in your device, and then you're in the middle of something, and boom, you lose power. Make sure that your Wi-Fi is working. Test it. Make sure that you're ready to go. Connect with the outside world a bit. Sit by a window if you can. Um, listen to music. And then get up and walk around every once in a while. Get some water, coffee, tea, stretch your legs, and stretch your mind. And frankly, when you need to talk to somebody, do it over the phone. Pick up the phone and call. Sometimes when you're touching base with others um, that you work with, you know, you just need to say hi. Um, it's a needed boost and a connection for both parties. And start off the work call by asking how people are doing. Learn something new about a coworker. Be flexible. Interruptions are going to happen, especially with all the family togetherness we're experiencing right now. Take a breath, regroup, and move on. Do try to control what you can. Obviously, background noise can be distracting for folks. So go behind a closed door during a call. Um, let the people around you know that you're working. And finally, sleep. I can't emphasize that enough. Working remotely doesn't mean that although you can work from anywhere or that you can work 24-7, um, that you should. This can really be a hard one when your workplace and your workspace are also your living space. But uh, try to do that the best you can. That's some advice that uh, at least I've learned. And I'm sure you've got thoughts as well. All right. And listeners, if you have more tips, we've got a thread going in HFMA's community. So please join the conversation and, and share your tips for working from home. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Todd Nelson for his participation this week. Before we go, I want to extend a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We have the option to lock the office doors and go home, but many of you don't. You and your colleagues are out there fighting this crisis head on. We're here for you. We appreciate you, and we hope you stay safe. <laughs>